Does anybody wear contacts? You like shut your eyes during worship and then you can't see. There, there's Elizabeth, there's Mandy, okay. <laughs> so then there's notes and you're like, I can't see them. Um, happens a lot. That's why glasses are better. Um, so welcome. Welcome. I'm going to talk to you guys tonight, and we're going to continue our series that we're doing for this three weeks um, on true religion, true relationship. And so last week, you guys, Matt kicked off our series, and he did a great job. Yes. <laughs> last week, um, Matt kicked off our series, and he did a great job. Um, and he's talking about what it talks what it means to have true religion, which is a lasting relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this week, we're going to kind of look again at Scripture and see what it means to have this true relationship with Jesus. And we're going to look at two historical dudes. Can you guys say two historical dudes? Two historical dudes. It's just funner to call them dudes, okay? Two historical dudes. Um, and we're going to kind of look at their lives. We're going to compare and contrast them. Okay, and then we're going to talk about how that applies to us, right? So two historical dudes, and it's going to apply to us. Um, and so kind of to start us off, have you guys ever like known two people that have the same job, but they're drastically different? Like has anybody ever experienced that before? Yep. Right? Like you might work at one job and you have a boss, right? And then you don't enjoy that boss, so you switch jobs. You work another job, and you also have a boss. But those bosses could be really different, right? Right? So, I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced that phenomenon. Like, here, you have two campus pastors. One is me, one is Matt. Drastically different people. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's possible for people to have the same job and be really different. And so, we're going to kind of see that as we look at these two historical dudes, okay? And we're going to look at the lives of Saul and the, lives, or the life of Saul and the life of David. And so they were the first two kings of Israel. We're going to kind of look at the lessons from their lives. And if you want to reference this, if you have your Bible or your phone Bible, um, you know, I like the paper one, but if you have the phone Bible, that's cool too. We'll be in 1 Samuel, okay? And we're going to kind of like go through different parts of 1 Samuel to unpack the story and learn what we can from the, the first kings of Israel. And I'm just going to be honest, my contacts are not working, so I'm going to like hold these up here. Um, <laughs> but the first king is King Saul, okay? And um, so before there were kings in Israel, there were judges. There's a whole book called Judges, so if you want to know more about the judges, you can, guess what, read Judges, right? Um, but before that, so basically, there these guys that God speaks to they help lead the nation, but the idea is that the king of the nation of Israel is God himself. And so there's not like a human flesh person king because God is considered to be king and he's working through these judges. And so at the beginning of First Samuel, um, we see Samuel, so titled the book, and um, we kind of like see him get born, see him raised up, and now he's kind of functioning as this judge in Israel. Okay, and so the people come to Samuel and they say, we want a king. So we're going to look at that, and it's in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It says, as Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba, but they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and they perverted justice. And so 
Samuel had these sons. These sons are kind of corrupt. They're not like their dad, right? And so that's kind of where this problem starts. In verse 4 it says, Finally all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they said, you're now old. You guys, if you're ever going to like have a conversation with somebody, that's probably not the point to start with. Okay. Look, you're old, okay, but, but that's how they started. They said, look, you're old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for that they're not rejecting, or for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods, and now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So Samuel repeated what the Lord had said to the people. And so, you know, Samuel is upset about this because Samuel understands that God is king. Samuel understands, I'm not king. I'm just, I'm just judge, and I'm kind of leading the people as you direct me, God. And he kind of realizes the implication of having a king isn't really that a king is bad. The implication of having a king is that the people would rather look to a human person like all the other nations around them than look to God as, as their source and as their leader in their lives. Okay, and so this kind of like what is happening. Um, so Samuel tells them and they still want a king. Okay, they still want a king. And so we're going to kind of see the first king of Israel, we're going to look at him, um, and Samuel goes to get him. And really, I think Samuel's job, like when I, when I walk around, because you guys want to read the Bible, I don't know about you guys, but I'll read a story, and then I, like I'm really contemplative, which means I like to think a lot, and, um, and it takes me a whole lot of thinking to formulate like even one sentence of like what I thought. Okay, um, so that's like, to, but, I, but I really like to sit and think about it. And so I'll picture these things. I'll picture, like, what would it be like to be Samuel in this situation? <laughs> They're like, you're old. <laughs> Your sons aren't getting the job done. We want a king. And then you don't just say, okay, like, you have to go, like, pray to God and find the dude. Um, so it was like, not only is he stepping out of his role, but he has to go, like, raise up this other guy. And, like, I just think that would be really hard. Um, but he does because Samuel was a man that was after, um, after God, and, and he wanted to follow and obey God. And so in 1 Samuel 9, kind of gives us a little background story. It says, There was a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin, and his son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel. So, so we've got Samuel the Old, um, and enter most handsome man in Israel. I don't know how they decided that, but it's, like, <laughs> it's really good looking, right? Um, and since we already said his name, y'all know he's going to be king, right? So the first king was a looker. So all the people are like, yes, the king. Um, it doesn't hurt. And it's, <laughs> I just think it's so funny when you read it. So he was a head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. And one day, Kish's donkey strayed away, and he told Saul, take the servant with you and go look for the donkeys. So Saul and one of his servants traveled through the hill country. And um, I'm going to kind of like paraphrase so we don't read it word for word. But basically, Saul and the servant, they go on this adventure to find the donkeys. And at some point, they've been gone so long that Saul says, we should go back. Because at this point, Dad's not just going to be worried about the donkeys. He's going to be worried about us because we've been gone a long time. But as he is like saying we need to go back, the servant says, um, I just remembered that there's a man of God that lives here. And we should go see the man of God. Maybe he knows where the donkeys are. Okay? And um. 
And so they decide they're going to go see this man of God, right? And um, so if we pick up in verse 15, it says, Now the Lord had told Samuel, who we already know is the man of God, the previous day, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him to be the leader of my people. He will rescue them for the Philistines, for I have looked down on my people in mercy and heard their cry. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said, That's the man I told you about. He will rule over my people. And so Samuel sees Saul. He realizes, This is the guy God spoke to me about. And, um, and it's funny because they have this initial conversation. Saul's like, I'm looking for some donkeys. And um, so he was like, the donkeys are already at home, but stay and, and sacrifice with me. And so in the process of this, he anoints Saul to be king. And then like kind of as you read, there's the coronation, right? The people receive him well. Um, Saul goes on to do kingly things like war, because that's what all the kings do during this time. If you read the Bible, um, there's apparently a time of year the kings go off to war. And so he does all of these kingly things. Um, and, and he's doing really good. He saves Jabesh and Gilead. Um, so he's like this king. And I think he's, in a sense, everything that people have wanted in a king. Like he's this ruler. He's this face of their nation. Whereas God was something they couldn't see. And, uh, and he's doing all this. And so in 1 Samuel 15, we see God start to speak. Right? Because before God was the king. Right? Now God is speaking to Samuel because he's still kind of like in this prophetic role to the king, kind of trying to direct the king um, to obey the Lord, okay? And so 1 Samuel 15, it says, One day Samuel said to Saul, It was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people Israel. Now listen to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I've decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite army, men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. That's really specific. So basically destroy it all. Um, so Saul mobilized his army. There were 200,000 soldiers from Israel, 10,000 men from Judah. And Saul and his army went to the town of the Malachites and lay in wait in the valley. So Samuel hears from the Lord. He explains this to Saul. And Saul does what? He, he obeys, right? He goes, he gets his men together, and they go to destroy it. And I think it's hard for us to understand because now... Like since Jesus, we're in the New Testament and the New Covenant, and we don't see um, like this angry, vengeful, like destroy all the people and leave nothing alive move anymore. Okay, um, but what that was is basically um, the idea of keeping nothing back. That that culture and the place they're attacking was so vile that they're to have no part of it. They're completely wipe it out, and um, so it's kind of part of this being set apart. Okay, um, so it tells us. In the Bible, in verse 9, there in chapter 15, Saul and his men, they, they went and they did this. They spared Agag's life, that's the king, and kept the best of the sheep and the goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. So can we spot the problem here? From what God said and what he did, right? Um, God said, go to the Malachites, and what? Destroy them completely. Saul goes to the Malachites. Um, he fights the Malachites. He defeats the Malachites. But he keeps a bunch of stuff. Right? So, like, there's a little difference in what God said and what Saul did. Right? Have we seen that? A little difference? 
And then in verse 10, we see the Lord speak to Samuel about it. And he says, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me. And he has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. And someone told him, Saul went down to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. So he's getting really used to being king at this point. Um, you build a monument to yourself, like, just maybe God is about to uh, correct you, okay? Um, then he went on to Gilgal. So when Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. Right? And, and so do you guys kind of spot the problem? Like God said, do this one thing. He does it, kind of. Um, and then when Samuel comes, Saul's like, what's up, dude? I obeyed the Lord. Um, I don't know about you guys, but like, if anybody's like, like walks up and they're like, how are you today? I've been obedient. Like, I don't know if like your spidey sense should go off, but like, like it's like, what are you hiding behind there? Um, so it begs the question, did Saul carry out the command of the Lord? Did Saul obey God? And the answer to that would be no, and this is why. Because incomplete obedience isn't obedience, right? And I think it's really easy for us to, to look at the story of his life and be like, well, he kind of did it, you know? And, um, but incomplete obedience isn't obedience, right? The Lord is grieved. And he's grieved because Saul did what the people thought was best. Because, like, really, if we read on and you read the whole story, it shows that the people were like, oh, do we really have to destroy all this stuff? Like, some of this plunder is pretty good. And he decides, no, we'll keep some of it. We'll keep some of it back. And so, ultimately, Saul decides to do what the people want more than to completely obey God. So this grieves the heart of the Lord. And I think this is really important because it's so easy, you guys, for us to make the exact same mistake in our lives. It's so easy um, to give in to the voices around you that are talking to you saying, oh, like, you should obey God, but, like, maybe you don't have to obey Him, like, all that way, or, like, you don't have to be so extreme, right? And it's really easy to casually dis dismiss disobedience, right? Or half-obedience, Right? Because it's half obedience, obedience. Like, is it you either obey God or you don't? And so an example of this, which is really funny, because this happens so often in my house, you guys. Is I have a son, Thomas. He's nine. And then we have um, two daughters, Cadence and Hannah. They're eight and six, okay? And so on Saturday morning, our kids, I'll kind of explain this. Our kids aren't allowed to play video games on weekdays, because if they play video games every day, they just get whiny. There's, there's really no better explanation besides they get whiny and like all they care about is video games. So we kind of limit it and they can play video games on the weekends. Now occasionally, because I work full time, Matt works full time, Friday night I realized the house is a mess. And the messiest spots in the house are the rooms of the adorable offspring of ours. And so I occasionally tell them, you know, on Saturday morning when you wake up, I need you to clean your room before you go start playing video games and stuff. And so they're always like, okay, okay, mom. Because um, usually, like, they're not super actually listening. And so, but, it, but it's so funny because we have this conversation often, you guys, because it's like, Thomas, I'm just picking on Thomas because he's the oldest, but Thomas will go in his room, and I think it's easier to tell what he did because the girls share a room. So it's like, 
if one girl cleaned her half, like it gets really confusing. So it's like you just both have to help until it's clean. Um, but like Thomas, he'll start to clean his room, and then at some point, he's kind of like loses focus on cleaning his room because maybe it's really messy, and goes on and starts playing video games, which is usually how you know the room isn't clean, right? Because um, usually if it is clean, he's like, ask, can I go play now? And you're like, you look and you say yes, right? And, and so when he like sneakily just goes and starts playing the video games, I'm like, hmm, the room. So I go look. And if I go in there and I see that like this half of the room over here is clean and you straighten it up, but this half of the room still has like the whole pile of like dirty clothes and there's like Legos all over the floor. Like half of the room is clean, right? Yeah? But is the room clean? No, because there's still like the pile of dirty clothes and the Legos on the floor. And really the dirty clothes is what always gets left, so that's why it's funny. Um, right, so it's like, even though he somewhat cleaned its room, it's better than it was, the room is not in itself clean. I think it's so easy for us um, as Christians sometimes to say like, well God, I did like maybe a little bit of what you told me to, or like I kind of obeyed you, or I obeyed you 75% God, <laughs> right? And I, I don't know, if you're ever praying in percentages, that's probably like <laughs> a good indicator that you're not doing, you know, but we really do that. Sometimes we partially obey God. Um, but I think this is one of those things that has taught me so many lessons, this story in the Bible about Saul, that incomplete obedience, it's not obedience. If I only half obey God, I'm not really obeying God, right? And um, so then in chapter 16, we get these famous words. And um, these words are going to spark a theme that we see throughout the whole rest of Scripture. And so I think, like some of you guys that have been in here a few years, you've heard me say this, but if, you, if God repeats something, right, that's like putting an exclamation point. Like if, if it's repeated in the Bible, that's like an exclamation point, right? And if it's repeated like over and over and over, that's basically like, as we read God's word, telling us that we should really, really pay attention to this because it's repeated and repeated and repeated. And this theme is one of those themes that's repeated and repeated and repeated. Um, so it says this. Samuel's talking to him and he says first, Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So he says, I did obey, right? I just kept the king, I brought him back, and then I brought back all of this other stuff instead of destroying it, because I want to give it to God, right? So now he's, he's saying, like, instead of obeying, I'm going to like bring all this stuff to God. And so Samuel replies, he says, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Y'all, that's some heavy words. That's some heavy words. He's saying... Basically, this disobedience or this half-obedience, like you rejected the Lord because you didn't obey. Um, and this becomes a theme that runs through the whole rest of the Bible. And so basically what he's saying is, God wants you to obey. God doesn't want you to come up with a whole other way to honor him 
like by sacrifices, right? Because he's like, God just wants you to like listen to him in the first place. And I think that's, that's so pointed. And there's a whole other story that we're not going to get to tonight in the book of 1 Samuel. But if you want to read it, it's kind of really funny where like some people trying to appease the Lord. And instead of going about the way they know or they could have found out that they're supposed to appease the Lord, they make like literal gold rats and tumors. And so, like, it's really funny because sometimes in our, in our house when I'm trying to obey God the way that's more comfortable for me versus just doing what he said, like, Matt and I, I'll say, I'm making golden rats, right? <laughs> um, which is not what God wanted. Does anyone really want that for Christmas, right? A golden rat. Like, what are you going to do with that? David wants a golden rat. Um, <laughs> right? But, but so it's, like, kind of a funny thing that we say in our house, making golden rats. But God has a way that he wants us to honor him, and that's through obedience. And I think one way that Matt's put it many times that really helped me is he's like, God's love language. You know, like we all have ways that we receive love. Some of us like um, touch. Some of us like spending time together. Some of us like gifts. I think everybody likes gifts, even if you're technically a different love language. Gifts are always good. Um, some of us, it's like acts of service, right? We all receive love in different ways, but the way that God receives our love is obedience. God's love language is obedience. And so he doesn't really want us to do a bunch of stuff or to offer him a bunch of sacrifices. He just wants us to obey his voice. Um, and that's a huge theme, and it carries on. We see it in Hosea 6.6. 6. It says, For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So God's saying, like, I want you to love me. I want you to give me stuff. I want you to love me. I want you to know me. More than I want you to sacrifice, more than I want you... To, to do all these things or to go through all these motions or to give me all this stuff, I want you to know me. He wants it to be personal. In Amos 5, it says this. In verse 21, he says, I hate all of your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals the solemn, and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. And so this, he's kind of like, God is speaking and he's taking it from like the literal sacrifice, right? Because I don't know about you guys, but it's really rare that I take like my sheep and I put it on my shoulder and I trudge into Chi Alpha and I lay it down and I say, God, I'm guilty of sin. And then, you know, like we don't really do that anymore. But in Amos, it starts to cross over, and God's saying, you know, it's not just that, that I don't want sacrifice so much as I want obedience. He's like, but there's all these forms of sacrifice, like worship services. You guys, for a musician, like, this is huge. This, I think when I read this scripture and I studied it a while back, like, it tore me up. Because that means it's really possible for me to be standing right up there and singing songs and it coming out of my mouth and it not connecting with my heart, right? And so like if I stand there and I play the guitar and I sing, like even if it's a really great smelly cat night and it sounds beautiful, okay? But like I don't mean it from my heart to God, like it's just empty and pointless. And like more than God doesn't accept it, he hates it. Some of you guys got that reference. I'm so happy. Um, some of you guys didn't, I'll explain it later. Um, but, but it's so easy for us to be doing a thing, doing a religious thing, or doing the church thing, or doing the Chi Alpha thing, 
right, doing the Jesus thing, but if our heart is not in it, then it's ultimately not what God wants because it's not coming from obedience. It's not coming from intimacy and relationship. And so you guys might say, this is good. This is all Old Testament, right? But then when we get into the New Testament, Jesus says this. Like he says the same thing again. In Matthew 9, 13, he says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call, not to call the righteous, but sinners. And he says it again in Matthew 12. He said, If only you'd known the meaning of I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And again in Mark 12, he says, We're to love him with all our hearts and all our understanding and all our strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, That is more important than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So Jesus himself is saying, What is more important? than for us to, to give God. I mean, we could like give and give and give to God. Or we could go and we could serve and we could serve and conserve. But what's more important than that is for it to be heartfelt, loving the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. That's really what he wants. Right? So what's this about? Here with the very first king of Israel, God is establishing what he desires. He wants more than just our real obedience, you guys. He wants more than us just going through a set of motions or following certain patterns or certain rules or being involved in certain things, even doing really, really great works. He wants our hearts. And all this leads us to the second king of Israel, okay? So we just read Saul is rejected, right? And um, Samuel cries out to God, and God speaks to him about the second king of Israel, which is going to be David. We know from the Bible that David's a man after God's own heart. Um, and I think it'd be safe to say while Saul looked the part of the king, like we said, he was like handsome and tall, like, like this big like manly king dude. While Saul looked the part of the king, David had the heart of a king. He had the heart of a godly king. Um, and so... We'll read in 1 Samuel, chapter 16, it says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. So Samuel legit goes into mourning over this whole situation. Like, he's upset. God says, I've rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I've selected one of his sons to be my king. Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Right? So, like, Saul at this point is still king, but God has rejected him, and so Samuel's knowing that a transition's going to need to occur. So God says, Take a heifer with you and stay, and say you've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong? They asked. Do you come in peace? But Samuel said, Yes. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Right? So he looks at this dude, and something about this son of Jesse looks really kingly. Right? But God said this. The Lord said, Samuel. 
Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Okay? And so God is saying, it does not matter what he looks like. He might look really kingly, which like, I don't know what a king looks like, but I, I assume likeish to Saul. Like he's like tall and good looking and maybe looks like a king. The Lord's saying like, don't look at that. That's not what I pay attention to. And I think this is so key for us because it's so easy for us to look at this, right? We look at the outward appearance. And it's easy for us not just to look at the outward appearance of others, but at ourselves we say, well, this is what people see, right? And so if I, if I go through the motions, then like everyone will think like she's all right, or she's doing good, which totally might work for people. But it's a whole other thing with God, right? The guy who can't go through the motion because he sees our heart. And, and so God says it's not Eliab. So then Samuel goes, and I'm going to kind of like fill in, okay? Samuel goes and he looks at the next son. And he's like, maybe it's him. It's not him. Next son, maybe it's him. It's not him, right? And so in verse 10 it says, in the same way all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. So we go through seven guys. And Samuel says, Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Are these all the sons you have? Right? And so, like, these guys have come, and he's like, God told me I'm supposed to come to you, and you have a son, and he's going to, you know, he's thinking he's going to be king. But every son he sees, he's like, that's not him. That's not him. So he goes through seven guys. Finally ask, is there anybody else? Right? And so this is the response. There's still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. So it tells us something. That tells us um, when this big, important prophet guy comes to town, like Jesse thought that his son David was so important that he didn't even invite him, right? So his own family isn't thinking like, obviously, this, this guy is anything special, right? But scripture tells us, send for him at once, Samuel said. We'll not sit down and eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So David stood there among his brothers. Samuel took the flask of olive oil he brought and anointed David with the oil. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. So we see that David's family, they didn't think anything of inviting him. This important guy's here. Like he's out in the field with the sheep. But there's something different about David, right? There's something different that God sees in David. And um, that's what's important, right? What's important is that God saw the difference. And I think if you read the Bible, you read through the Old Testament, if you get to the Psalms, the Psalms are mostly written by David, and they are mostly written in that field, right? Um, where he's tending sheep and he just had time to be with the Lord. So I think really some of that time in the field tending sheep provided a great opportunity for David to pursue God and develop this life of, of praise and prayer. Um, we don't have time to read about all of it, right? If you guys are curious, you can go and you can get the Bible. If you don't have one, you've got a bunch. Um, but you can like read First Samuel for yourself and see. But we see that David's different, right, when he encounters Goliath. And there's this big hulking guy, and nobody in the whole army of Israel is willing to go after this guy. But this kid, because at this point David's still a kid, 
he goes out and he says, you come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord Most High, and he defeats him, right? So there's something different about David. We can see there's something different about him um, in these Psalms, right? Because while he was a mighty warrior, like, I don't know, sometimes we get an incorrect view of David, and we think, like, oh, he was just this worshiper. But, like, David is probably one of those dudes, if you read about him in Scripture, that if you... If you made him mad, he could tear you apart. Like, he wasn't, like, uh, <laughs> he wasn't, like, not a warrior. He was a warrior. But even more, he was a worshiper. And so, so there was, like, something deeper than just that fighting. Um, and we can see there's something different, especially when, at some point, David's serving Saul. Saul gets mad, realizes that God has a plan for David's life and tries to kill him. So David goes on the run from King Saul. And if you go to, like, 1 Samuel 24, you can read about it, that David's hiding in a cave, right? King Saul and his army are, are hunting for him, and it's the middle of the night, and, um, and Saul is right outside the cave, and all of David's men are saying, like, go kill him, dude. And he won't, because he's like, no, like, that's God's anointed. That's not, that's not for me to do. I'm going to trust God to take care of it. And he doesn't. And so we see, like, time after time, that David has this heart that's just different. It's a heart that honors God. It's a heart that wants to obey God more than anything else, even more than get to the throne. And if you do the math, you guys, like, David's anointed, and then it's about 15 years later that he actually becomes king. So there's a huge wait time in there. But in this whole time, he's trusting God, and he's trusting God's going to make it happen. I don't have to make it happen. I'm just going to obey him and trust him to work it out. And we see it after David sends with Bathsheba, and the, he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. Um, and when he repents in Psalm 51, this is what he says. He says, You don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And so we see it again that David understood this. Saying, man, God, and like this is when he's like at the bottom of the bottom as far as like praying for restoration from sin. He's saying, God, if you wanted a thousand sacrifices, I would give it to you, but that's not what you want. You want my heart. You want my life. You want me to truly live for you. Um, so when we consider what kind of sacrifice God wants from us, I think it's safe to say that God is after something real with us. This is kind of the point of this message. Um, I called it rules versus real, but God is after something real with us. He wants to know us. He wants relationship. He doesn't want us just going through the motions or playing the part. He wants our heart and our very core to be all about him. Right? That's what he wants. Um, so the question to you guys, I want to take a minute to think about it as we move into our response time. The question then is, so where are you? Where are you in this? Who does your heart more resemble? Does your heart more resemble Saul, who's going after what the people think and half-heartedly obeying, or does your heart more resemble David, who's after God, no matter how long it takes or what the cost? What are the areas in your life that God might be calling you to be real with him about? Or is there any areas in your life where you've been going through the motions? Right? So I talked about for a second, um, I'm going to share this and then we'll pray. 
When I talked about for a second, you know, a while back, um, we were going through, Matt and I were young adult pastors in um, Knoxville, and we went through the life of David. So it was like weeks and, and probably over a few months, we went through the life of David, studied it um, with our young adults there. And when we got to the part where we were talking about um, Saul and his incomplete obedience and this theme of God desires mercy, not sacrifice, and he desires our obedience, not just our, like, our time and our doing this stuff. Like, you guys, it wrecked me. Because they were, I was just at a point, um, like, we're not very old, but I was at a point where I had been doing ministry, and I have been doing, like, Jesus stuff for so long that I was just doing Jesus stuff. And I, I sincerely love the Lord. Like, I wasn't um, not saved or anything, but, like, I sincerely love the Lord, but I, I realized there were so many things that I was doing for Him just because I'm supposed to do them. And it was, like, one of those times the Lord completely convicted me. He took me to John 4, um, where it talks about um, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. You know, and, and just that whole, the idea of, like, true worshipers, like, we worship in truth. So there should be truth behind whatever I'm doing. There should be actual legitimate heart and care behind what I'm doing. So whether I'm, like, at life group or I'm serving a homeless person a meal or I'm singing a song, like, there needs to be real. And, and it's so funny because our band, our band's there, this is what we came up with. We, we said the goal is real, right? So at any worship service, um, like some of you guys are musicians, some of you aren't, but you can probably track with me and conceive that like there are days that music goes really good, right? And there are days that for whatever reason, music goes kind of bad, right? And um, we kind of came up with a slogan that the goal is real. So what that meant is whether the music sounded really good or really bad or just in the middle, like if we did not sincerely focus on the Lord and worship Him with all our hearts, then like it was really bad. Because the point should be to, to focus on the Lord and to love Him with all our hearts. And, and so kind of like that spread through the culture of this group. And it's funny because I got to see one of my friends last Wednesday. And, um, and she was like, the goal's still real, right? And like, so it's just like the one word, but it kind of became the slogan that like, the goal should be to be real. Like whatever we're doing for Jesus, it should be to be absolutely, completely real. After a relationship with Him, after His heart, not just to do it to please other people or to go through the motions, because if we're going through the motions, really, like He knows, right? And there's really only one opinion that ever matters, and it's His. Um, so we're going to pray, and um, we're going to pray for a few things. The first thing, you know, is if you're here and you're saying, man, I don't know Jesus, so like, I, I don't know how to be real with him because I haven't made him my Lord and Savior. You guys, I want to give you an opportunity to receive that tonight. Because, you know, it's absolute truth. Jesus, he came and he lived on this earth among us. He lived a sinless life. He did miracles. Um, and they suffered on the cross. And he died in our place so that we could be set free. Because we've all done wrong and we needed a Savior. And then three days later, he rose from the dead and he's seated still today at God's right hand and he's interceding for us and longing for us to come to a relationship with him. And so if you've not made that choice, literally it is the most important choice you could ever make because heaven is absolutely real. So those that trust Christ as Savior, 
Like one day at the end of this life, we're going to see God face to face. Okay? But also, hell is absolutely real. And like one day at the end of this life without Jesus, if we don't know him, we're going to be separated from God for eternity. And that's, that's absolutely real. So I don't want anybody to miss the opportunity. So we're going to pray for that in a minute. And then we're going to pray um, if there's anybody here that just feels like they need to move from rules to relationship or like there's an area that you're going through the motions. I just want to pray for you tonight um, and ask God to make that move because really that's not what, I mean, Matt and Christine and I, we can't like make that happen for you, but like I think as we surrender our hearts to God, like he'll move in that way. Um, so if you guys would just all bow your heads and close your eyes. Just spend some minutes.